You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. We can see that a lot of people don't trust their banks and the banking apps in general. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, Ben discusses a key appeals court case on cell site location information tracking. I take a look at the Biden administration's broadband proposals and why they're giving cable companies heartburn... Later in the show, my conversation with Marius Bredis from NordVPN. We're going to be looking at their 2021 online banking privacy trends survey. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, Ben, we've got some good stories uh, to share this week. Why don't you start things off for us? So my story comes from a usual suspect. Don't roll your eyes, but I saw it on Professor Oren Kerr's Twitter feed over the weekend. (laughs) The secret object of your affection, right? Yes. Uh, So at some point, we will send him royalties, although I'm sure the University of California, Berkeley, uh, has taken care of him financially. Uh, But he alerted me to a really interesting case coming out of the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. Uh, out in the Midwest. And this relates to real-time tracking of cell site location information. So it's a criminal case. The criminal defendant is a guy by the name of Rex Hammond, and he committed a bunch of armed robberies in the Midwest, Michigan and Indiana. And this is actually a pretty great detective story if you want to get into it. But basically, he left his weapon behind at one of the stores that he decided to rob. They traced the weapon to the seller. The seller said that he sold the weapon to this guy, Mr. Hammond. And using that information and matching up a description of his car, they were able to figure out who he was. So they obtained historical cell site location information to determine that he had been present at many of these robberies, but they didn't know where he was at the time they obtained that information. Hmm. So they asked AT&T 
his provider to give them real-time cell site location information, to have his phone ping uh, or to track his phones pinging off cell towers uh, to determine his real-time location. Hmm. And it turns out that he was in Indiana and was tracked down by local police and arrested, prosecuted. Uh, He was charged with federal crimes related to firearms possession. Wow. Uh, So he's convicted. He's going away for a long time. He is appealing on the grounds that this search of his cell site location information, particularly the real-time cell site location information, is an unconstitutional violation of the Fourth Amendment. It was hmm. a warrantless search. Uh, that was my next question. Did they did they get a warrant? They did not get a warrant. They hmm. used uh, a couple of different statutory authorities under t- Section 2703 of the Stored Communications Act. Hmm. Uh, so there was no warrant. What Mr. Hammond is arguing is that this case is similar to Carpenter v. United States. And in that case, the Supreme Court held that long-term collection of cell site location information is unacceptable under the Fourth Amendment in the absence of a warrant. And what he's saying here is the collection of my cell site location information is akin to that type of long-term surveillance we saw in Carpenter. So there's kind of a, a disagreement among scholars about how to interpret Carpenter. Some, including Professor Kerr, think that what Carpenter should stand for, at least, is that Anytime the government wants to use cell site location information, it is of a particular type that it should require a warrant. Just that nature of data collection is invasive enough that it should acquire a warrant. Hmm. The government and other scholars basically think it all depends on how much data is being collected and how long the defendant was being surveilled. And the Court of Appeals here ended up agreeing with the government's perspective. They have upheld the conviction, basically saying that this type of warrantless collection was not a violation of the Fourth Amendment. And they distinguish it from Carpenter in a couple of ways. For one, in Carpenter, the cell site location information was collected over a period of at least seven days, probably longer, maybe up to a month. And here, the real-time collection uh, only happened for about six hours. So there is sort of a duration difference in the type of collection. The other is that And this is a really interesting distinction. They only tracked him on public roads. So at the time that they were surveilling him through the use of cell site location data. So for those six hours, he was in public places. He was uh, out on public roads. He wasn't in somebody's home. He wasn't in his own home. Mm -hmm. Uh, He wasn't trying to conceal himself. And there's a Supreme Court precedent in the case of Knott's v. United States that the government doesn't need a warrant to track you on public thoroughfares, places where you are viewable to law enforcement, potentially. So that's Hmm. the government's argument here that this is basically a Knott's case uh, instead of a Carpenter case. Interesting. So it's a really interesting disagreement. I tend to come down with Professor Kerr and other scholars who think you have to draw a bright line. If you're going to say that long-term, seven-day cell site location information surveillance would violate the Fourth Amendment, then I think that should per se mean something about all cell site location information collection. Because otherwise, it gets into this very blurry line drawing exercise where you don't know, you know, we know a week is sufficient, but we don't know whether six hours is sufficient. So what's the cutoff? Um, And I think that's just a really difficult uh, standard to try to uh, adhere to. 
I have a couple of thoughts and, and, and questions for you here. First of all, does it make any difference that when it came to the cell site information, they were not out on a fishing expedition? They had a good sense for who their man was based on other information. You know, They had the gun. They had the person who sold the gun to him. So they had this other information. They were looking for the cell site information initially basically for confirmation. You know, we think this is our guy. Hey, can you tell us, was this guy at these locations? To me, that's different than them saying, hey, who was at these locations? We, don't, we have no idea who our man is. is so, is there, yes, there is, there is a difference, but I don't think the information they had was necessarily enough to establish probable cause, which is the standard to obtain a warrant. Mm. What they did have certainly was reasonable suspicion, which is the standard uh, to acquire this information via subpoena through the Stored Communications Act. Hmm. So there is that distinction. They certainly suspected that this guy had committed the robberies, but they did not have hard and fast proof. Now, it's certainly better than some of those geolocation cases that we've talked about where – you know, they say, well, who was in the vicinity of this store during the robbery? Let's gather mm-hmm. up all that data uh, and then, you know, try and match the phone to a suspect. I, I feel less bad about it because you're right. There was certainly individualized suspicion here. At the very least, there was strong circumstantial evidence. So I, I do think that matters. But I think it's worth noting that they didn't have sufficient information to obtain a warrant which is evidenced by the fact that they did not obtain a, a warrant. Uh, <laughs> they knew better than to ask for one. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> right, right. So, okay, so then this whole thing of them uh, tracking him with the real-time information when he was on public roads, did they just get lucky there? Did they cherry-pick the data? Did they say, ooh, we've got 10 hours of tracking data here. Let's just use the six hours when he was on a public road. It's really hard to say because there's yeah. actually a dispute among the detectives uh, as to exactly when the cell site location information was being collected. Hmm. And they did get a little bit lucky because he was traveling in an area that was not his hometown. So the first sighting of Mr. Hammond after they used the cell site location information was actually at a Quality Inn parking lot in South Bend, Indiana, which hmm. is where they first ran the license plate. So, yeah, they were lucky because that that is a public road. He wasn't trying to conceal himself uh, in his house, for example. Where this, this kind of gets sticky is we're talking about a method of collection, cell site location information, that it's not dependent on whether a person is trying to conceal him or herself physically, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah. So you can collect cell site location information, whether a person is hiding under their you know, mattress right. or, or you know, strolling in the middle of the street. It's the location that matters. Whereas in the Knotts case, which this court refers to repeatedly and is using as its main precedent case, the deciding factor in that case is that this person was driving on public roads the whole time. Hmm. So I'm just not sure, in my mind, you can apply that logic when we're talking about cell site location information, which in my view is just fundamentally different because it can be collected when you are trying to conceal yourself from public view. Mm-hmm. Is this the end of it? Does, can they take it to a next level? Is there a possibility for more appeals here? So this is the highest level without getting to the U.S. Supreme Court. I will say I'm not sure this is the type of case that's ripe for Supreme Court review because we're still only a couple of years past the Carpenter decision. And the Supreme Court declined in that uh, decision to rule definitively on real-time cell site location information. 
that case was specifically about historical cell site location information. You know, at a certain point, the Supreme Court is going to need to clarify exactly what Carpenter means. Did Carpenter mean there is a heightened standard when we're using this specific form of collection? Or does it have to do instead with how long that surveillance was taking place and how much private information it can reveal? I think eventually they have to answer that question. I just think it's too early in the post-Carpenter world for them to answer that question at this point. I think they're kind of going to want to see how lower courts have started interpreting these types of cases before they decide to weigh in. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, it's an interesting story for sure. And of course, uh, there's an open invitation to Professor Kerr to come on the show to discuss it. Always. I will discuss anything. If he wants to discuss, you know, good places to eat Thai food in Berkeley, I'll discuss that with him. Fair enough. All right. Uh, Well, let's move on to my story this week. Uh, This comes from uh, the protocol.com website. It's uh, written by uh, Issy Lepowski, and it's titled, In Biden's Broadband Plan, Cable is In for the Fight of Its Life. So President Biden, as part of his uh, $2 trillion American jobs plan, has put in a proposal for $100 billion for broadband infrastructure. And the folks who are most excited about this are people who have put in community broadband. So these are basically not your cable companies. These are uh, municipalities, uh, sometimes local nonprofit groups who get together. They install their own broadband infrastructure They provide it very inexpensively or even for free for their communities. And it's sort of coming at it as a community good uh, rather than a profit center. Not that there's anything wrong with the cable companies making profits, but just, you know, different ways to come at this issue. Sure. Of course, (laughs) the cable companies are not happy about this this proposal uh, because this means – poor cable companies. (laughs) This means – This means competition for them. And I don't know, Ben, you know, the cable companies, this article points out the cable companies spent over $7 million lobbying Congress last year against this sort of thing. Uh, They have worked hard and have been successful in, in many cases fighting municipal broadband. They claim that it's redundant, that what ends up happening is you you build out more capacity where there already is capacity. I suppose one person's capacity is another person's competition, right? Right. <laughs> but then also that it doesn't uh, – there's a tendency to build out in places where it's easy to build out, which are cities. Right. And it's much harder to build or out certain in – certain parts of cities, to certain, be clear. Yeah, yeah. And it's harder to build out – in rural areas, because when you're running long cables, you know, when the houses are farther apart, that's harder to run the cables or the, the fiber uh, to the houses. You know, we've seen some things change over time with this as things like 5G are coming online, where you have truly high speed wireless that could be accessible to rural communities. And we have even satellite services. Elon Musk's, um, uh, what is it, Starlink, I believe yep. it's uh, called, that um, that provides a much higher uh, bandwidth than some of the other satellite services that have been available. So again, you know, finally some real competition out there for folks who, I think it's for those of us who uh, have the benefit of living in areas where we have access to high speed broadband. um, There are plenty of folks out there who still have dial up and that's all they've got. And uh, hard to, hard to imagine being an active participant in the global digital economy 
at twelve hundred baht or whatever, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So a couple, of, a couple of thoughts here. First of all, I will reveal my own biases as a former resident of Baltimore City, where yeah. a certain unnamed cable company had a monopoly on broadband services. Mm. Um, there was some administrative rule in place that basically forbid all competition. So it was like the old Lily Tomlin commercial parody on SNL. Mm. Um, we don't care. We don't have to. Right. Uh, let's just say the customer service was a little bit lacking because of that lack of competition. So any introduction of competition at first blush would seem to be a benefit. One of the reasons building up both municipal broadband and rural broadband capabilities is so important is it's not that the digital economy uh, is slowly expanding and that more and more of our interactions are coming online. That's true. But we also had this sudden shock to our system with the COVID-19 pandemic where all of a sudden public schooling, one of the most minimal things that the state offers to its citizens, required some very strong bandwidth in order right. for students of all walks of life to connect. We've kind of accepted that one of the roles of government is to provide public schooling to school-age children, you know, 5 to 18 or whatever. Uh, in order to make that a reality during the pandemic era, we need to supplement that with strong broadband, particularly in rural areas and parts of cities where it might not be profitable to set up such a robust network. So I think there's certainly a public interest beyond just simply trying to screw over these cable companies. I can understand why they're <laughs> as, as gratifying as that may be. <laughs> right. And, you know, as much as the next guy, I'd like to own, you know, metaphorically own some of these cable companies. I just I just want to point out, too, that, you know, they, they're an easy target. But boy, I mean, they've earned it. Right. Everybody's heart sinks a little bit when they have to make a phone call to their cable company or, or you know, nobody looks forward to any of those interactions. They have they have 100 percent earned their reputation of being difficult to deal with and, and providing lackluster service. Yeah, I uh, let's just say I'm never in a good mood when I have to call the cable company about a service issue. Right. Because, you know, the first 20 buttons I have to press are things that I've already thought of. Like, <laughs> did you try turning it on and turning it off? Yes, I did. Right, right. right. Uh, and I think a lot of us can uh, relate to that frustration. So we have little sympathy here. Mm -hmm. And I just think there is a strong policy rationale to have the government step in where necessary to ensure that there's universal access to this type of bandwidth whether it hurts the cable companies or not. Now, they have very, very powerful lobbyists. They're putting a lot of money behind this. I would never bet against uh, a lobby as strong as this one. Um, they have a lot of influence among both members of Congress and the executive branch. So I do think we can't just assume that because it makes sense to us for there to be a you know strong municipal and rural broadband that it, you know is worth it to legislators who are you know have their feet to the fire here it's a shame we couldn't look at this also more from a global point of view i mean when you look at the comparisons here in the us our broadband is slower and more expensive than many of the nations that we are looking to compete with and it seems like here in the us you're lucky if you have a duopoly you know, if you if you have a choice between two terrible cable companies, right? <laughs> oh, you're extremely lucky. I mean, most people don't even have that choice or you're choosing between one cable company and satellite service, which mm -hmm. I'm not a satellite person, but I've heard complaints from satellite people that if there's a 
mild thunderstorm, their service might go out. Yeah. You know, there, there are other drawbacks to satellite service. So there, there really isn't that much competition. I'm trying to think of another example of something where the government provides a baseline service. But then if you want to, maybe it's public schools. You know, if the, the government provides a baseline service that you get through your taxpayer money. But if you want to take it to the next level, you can pay and, and do something, you know, for that for you, you think would be better. And public yep. schools are kind of that way, right? Schools are healthcare for old people. So mm-hmm. government yep. gives you Medicare. Right. But all the rich old people get Medicare Advantage plans, which have all the bells and whistles, you know, where you can get covered for more things, your co-pays are lower, that sort of thing. Let me ask you this, Ben. Here's a historical uh, thing for you. Having lived in Baltimore, are you familiar with the historical job of a night porter? I am, I am not. Inform me. So Baltimore City turns out, time for History Corner with Dave and Ben. <laughs> turns out Baltimore City was one of the last cities to install a citywide sewer system. Mm. And so there was a job called a night porter, which was the person who came around at night and you would hire this person to clean out your container where all of your septic things went. I'm stealing this joke, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> you think you have a crap job. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So these folks would come around as sort of a horse and carriage type of thing, horse and wagon thing, and they'd come around and they'd empty it out and they, in this case, take it down to the harbor and just dump it in the harbor. Uh, <laughs> so there's a there's a strata of, uh, of, of that stuff in the harbor uh, for someone to dig out someday. Um, and actually, uh, another little tidbit is uh, one of the reasons that Baltimore was one of the last cities to hook up is there was quite a lot of resistance from the wealthier, tonier parts of town to be hooked up to a common system with the poor people. They were afraid something might flow the other direction and they might get sick from being connected with all of those others. Interesting. I I have to say that is a very common concern and it probably relates to the topic we're talking about more than our listeners might think. Yeah, yeah. But, But my point is that there came a point when the city did install citywide sewer system. And it's hard to imagine any community without that these days. So is that an example of of something that went from being in the private sector to something being considered a, a public good? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things like that. Transportation is another one. I'm not hmm. a transportation history buff, but you used to have a lot of private railways. They all ended up getting unified under one government system. We can certainly have arguments about whether that improved services or not. But yeah, we have seen that in in other sectors as well. Yeah. Yeah. I I guess personally, I like the idea of there being sort of ubiquitous, uh, common, minimal level of of broadband available for anyone uh, that's provided by your government, be it local government, federal government. But then if you really need the high speed stuff or you want to upgrade, well, then maybe that's where you reach out to your cable providers and they can provide a premium service. Absolutely. Um, And I think at this point, you have to consider it a public good because it is so essential to provide the services of public goods, most notably in our era, public education. So, you know, I think you can't look at it outside the context of what's been happening over the past year where people have been engaged in online learning. Um, And that just illustrates that we shouldn't be at the whims of these cable companies when we're talking about something that's so crucial to public life. Yeah. 
All right. Well, the article is over on the protocol website, again, written by uh, Icy Lepowski. Uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes, of course. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us, you can call in. Our number is 410-618-3720, or you can send us an email. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. Imagine a world where you're always one step ahead of cyber threats, where your defenses are impenetrable because you see what others don't. Welcome to Team Cymru's Threat Intelligence Solutions. With real-time access to the world's largest threat intelligence data ocean, they enable you to turn the tables on attackers. Transform your security from reactive to proactive through accelerated threat hunting and incident response, made possible through automation. Empower your team with visibility and insights to start defending your organization like never before. Team Cymru. Be the hunter, not the hunted. Learn more at team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. That's team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Marius Bredis. He is from NordVPN. And we discussed their 2021 online banking privacy trends survey. Here's my conversation with Marius Bredis. We wanted to do the report about the banking industry as a whole and how the users interact with it. And the key insights here is that we found out that uh, people and the majority of the Americans use banking apps and uh, but they don't trust them. That was a really interesting insight from uh, their perspective. Another one uh, that Americans' online behavior uh, are inconsistent, and uh, one third of them have accessed their bank's accounts while they are connected through public Wi-Fi, uh, despite the warnings uh, of doing so. And the third one is really pleasant for me because I know that people take care of their security, and they said that they consider that secure connection is essential when they're working from home or outside the home. Well, I mean, let's dig into some of the details here. When it comes to online banking, where do we stand? What are some of the percentages that you all were able to reveal here in the survey? We can deep deep dive into millennials and GY, for example, and we see that they are slightly more concerned about security than other cohorts. And other interesting fact that we found out that uh, boomers, for example, uh, they are the most concerned about security in general. They confirmed that they never check their uh, bank account while on public Wi-Fi. So that's an interesting story. Why do you suppose it is that folks don't have a high level of trust for their banking apps? Data breaches uh, is kind of a a new uh, paradigm that we have today. Uh, For example, I was searching today and found out that uh, we had about 80 major breaches into 2020 and uh, about 330 million people were put uh, puts at risk of identity and theft fraud, for example. And we have such uh, attacks like ransomware, credential stuffing, malware, and so on. And I was looking what is going on in 2021. So we had 24 uh, really big breaches so far. We started with uh, Ubiquity routers, uh, as you may know, and ended up with uh, Clubhouse scraping data. So in general, I think people see these and think that uh, their account could be compromised throughout the data breaches. Yeah, it was fascinating to me that one of the things that your your research uh, revealed here was that 
a lot of people are out there. They're they're checking their bank accounts every day for uh, for potential bad actions. Yeah, uh, I use my banking app every day, and uh, usually I'm not so much into checking about the breaches every day. I use uh, automated tools, but uh, we can see that a lot of people don't trust their banks and the banking apps in general. That was a fascinating fact for me too. Let's talk a little bit about uh, this notion of where we stand when it comes to public Wi-Fi. I mean, one of the things the report points out is that a lot of folks are still doing things like their online banking with public Wi-Fi. Can you describe to us why is this an issue? I, I would imagine that, um, I mean, if, you, if you're creating a banking app these days, you must be using some sort of encryption between the app and, and the bank. Um, so what, is, what are we putting at risk here? Yeah, of course. When you're creating a banking app or Neo FinTech app or whatever it would be these days, you are making sure that you have at least TLS connection to the server, to the backend, right? But when you are on the public Wi-Fi, you never know what's going on with your traffic in there. You know that it's encrypted, but for example, nowadays these apps are still not using uh, DNS or HTTPS or DNS or TLS. They're not encrypted their DNS traffic. So it's really easy for attacker, especially if they have the root privileges of the router to see when you are using your banking app and conduct various attacks on it. So they can see basically, I don't know, taking advantage of the the metadata of knowing who you're connecting to when, that perhaps they would pay special attention to the traffic that they know is likely to have something to do with financial transactions. Yes, exactly. So I was checking my banking app today too, what I'm using, to be honest, two banking apps. And I saw that neither of them are doing the encryption of uh, DNS traffic. So I was really surprised about it. And when you put a, a simple EPNet connection on it, like a second layer of security, uh, you cannot see the, this traffic. Everything is encrypted. And obviously, uh, you and your colleagues there at NordVPN are in the VPN business. Do you want to give us uh, the quick description of uh, what, what are the benefits there for folks uh, enabling a VPN? So as I mentioned before, you are just uh, enabling uh, another layer of security on your whole traffic as a whole, right? When, for example, you are using your mobile phone, uh, you can just quick connect to our nearest server that is uh, near you and uh, make sure that your traffic is uh, encrypted, like uh, the second layer of security. And even any traffic that goes outside of your mobile phone or computer or any other device that you're using VPN with, with is encrypted. And for example, it's really hard to do man in the middle attacks uh, through even public Wi-Fi or other means of network. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, I like to think of it as just kind of like installing that second deadbolt lock on the, the front door of your house. You know, you, you may already <laughs> have a lock, but, you know, why not? It's not a whole lot of extra effort. So uh, why not have that second lock for a little, you know, let you sleep a little more soundly at night? Yes, exactly. Was there anything in particular that you found surprising in the numbers that you got back here from this research? It was really surprising for me that users doesn't trust uh, their banking apps, right, in general. So they're using them uh, daily, on daily basis, like I do, but uh, most of them doesn't trust them. And I can see why, because uh, we've seen a lot of targeted attacks to mobile banking customers in recent years, uh, mainly through app-based banking trojans or fake banking apps in general. So... Usually, uh, banking trojans are really tedious and uh, they try to make users install 
pretending some kind of other fun or usable software. Think here about games, uh, battery managers, uh, power boosters, etc. So, and uh, when they strike, they strike unexpectedly too. Uh, they're trying just to kind of take over and steal our credentials. Other things uh, that is fascinating for me is fake banking apps. So they are more straightforward. Uh, they try to convince you that they are a real deal and try to steal our credentials too. So I think people are aware of these attacks uh, and uh, they are that, that's why they are not trusting the banking apps in general. Yeah, that's fascinating to me. I mean, I wonder what the... What could the banks do to instill more trust in their users? You know, I think about how you you have to walk that fine line between demonstrating to your users that the app is secure, but also not throwing up too many roadblocks that people get frustrated with the the, the hoops they have to jump through to enable that security. I think it should be it should go both ways. To be honest, uh, banks always invest into their security. We know that they are certified and do the latest certifications, uh, including modern software, secure software development cycles and so on. But education uh, is really important here and educating their users uh, should be a part of their daily business, I think. And for example, today I got uh, a push push notification from my bank that uh, there are some kind of phishing campaign going on with this bank and just take care and don't give any PIN or other credentials to non-bank people that are not working in the bank. So I think uh, it's really important not to have like big and good threat intelligence in-house, but don't forget to educate uh, the users because uh, knowledge is the best prevention, in my opinion. Ben, what do you think? interesting interview. One of the things that you brought up, which I think is so important in all of these considerations, is the balance between having these extra security measures and convenience. Because for most people, you might reach a point where these extra security measures become such an annoyance that they opt for some sort of application that doesn't have any security features. Hmm. So if you're forced to go through uh, multi-factor authentication every time you want to log into your bank... That's a best practice, but for a person who's not plugged into the world of cybersecurity, that might just be kind of an unnecessary annoyance, and you might download the trendy app where it doesn't require face ID or or fingerprints or whatever every time you log in. Right. So so I just I thought that was a really important and interesting thing to come out of that discussion. Yeah. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Marius Bredis from NordVPN. Uh, You can check out their online banking privacy trend survey that is over on their website. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilby. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.